Welcome to the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast, where we explore popular practices, songs, and ideas in the modern church world in the light of Sola Scriptura and Toto Scriptura. I'm Cody Fields. I own Westminster Effects. Go to westminstereffects.com and buy some guitar pedals that are church history themed. Uh, you can also join the discussion in the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast Lounge on Facebook. You can also follow the brand on Facebook and Instagram. Support the show at anchor.fm. You know, make sure you leave comments, share the show, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I'm joined in person by Spradley Cox, pastor at Resurrection Church, and currently uh, battling allergies. And I might sound, sound a little extra bassy. Yeah, today. You, you and me both. I'm not on the extra bassy side because all of my yeah. sinus stuff is in my forehead. Um, a little bit in my face. Yeah. But but you got that post-nasal thing going Man, on. Man, the, uh, the pollen's already bad here, and it's just, I've been sneezing all morning. The pollen is, abs- it's it's not just bad. <laughs> this week is brutal. Yeah, I love, the, I love where we live. I love the location. Yeah. I love being close to the mountains and the coast. Yeah. But when it's spring, and spring is like... The most awesome time of year, yeah. right? But yeah. man, the pollen just gets you. Yeah, and it, it's that first couple of weeks where the the Bradford pears are are just going ballistic. You yeah. walk outside, and it just smells terrible right now. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> it just smells awful. It's true. Uh, we we are not. This is the second week in a row, John. Get it together. Uh, sexy boat captain, Augsburgian Christian John Ross is not with us today, so I guess we'll just kind of go with it and yeah. see what kind of thoughts we can have while we're being allergic. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Austin Dobbs asks, uh, he, he posted a rant about churches hiring professional musicians who aren't members of their congregation uh, so they can, quote unquote, up their production on Sundays. He said, for full disclosure, his church pays a professional sound engineer who is not a member to run the board almost every week. If churches have the means, what is the appropriate level of contracting outside help? Uh, he goes into examples of sound and video production, child care, security, janitors, accountants, etc. to help keep things running week to week versus hiring from within or relying on volunteers. So kind of a lot there, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How, basically, how much should a church hire in order to make a church service happen? Well, I I don't know that there's a you know a black and white answer to this. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Th- there are situational things that might demand, um, or at least you know lean you toward paying someone for help and expertise, you know, right. Uh, I can think of instances both here at res and other places where I've served, where I might've hired out uh, a sound guy for a special event or a musician or two here and there Mm -hmm. uh, for a special kind of thing where, you know, I just needed expertise that I did not have in house. Right. Um, but my this and this is me. I'm not. I'm not trying to leverage this on every church. But my approach has been, from a week to week standpoint, which I think he says that in the question, right? Yep. Like yep. from a week to week standpoint, I want to use as many um, of 
our church fam- I want to use all of our church family. Right. And I think that the people that are paid here at Res are vocational people. Like this is their mm-hmm. livelihood to serve here in a in a certain capacity. Right. Um, we don't pay musicians. Uh, we don't have a a paid sound tech. Although I have hired sound engineer experts to come in from time to time to help us on mm-hmm. you know whether if we're installing new equipment or you know there's been a couple of times like I said where we've had special events that I've brought them in. But right, I, I just think that you there there is. I don't know, a fine line, I guess, so to speak, that mm-hmm. you you start to treat the production of Sunday morning um, as just that. You, you start to treat Sunday morning as a production, and your values could get off, could get off paying people and, and you know, valuing talent and skill over and above belonging and being a member. Right. I think that's... That to me gets a little dicey, you know, but, you know, I remember I got, I've been hired by churches to just come in and play keys. Yeah. You know, there was one church in Georgia that they paid me $200 a week and I didn't even have to show up for rehearsal. All I had to do was show up. They sent me the charts. Um, I would get a, this was before so much digital stuff. I'd get a CD in the mail with a host of songs on it yep. and listen to it, look at the chart, show up on Sunday morning, get paid $200. That's not too bad. Was, yeah, I mean, it was great. Um, but is that a healthy thing long-term? I don't think so. Right. I think you're better off. I mean, you, you want to have excellence and quality, but I'm just not sure about uh, outsourcing things that are meant to be part of corporate worship. Mm-hmm. If somebody reminded me of this quote from Eugene Peterson um, recently where he said that every local church is an outpost of heaven in the backwaters of hell. <laughs> and, and I, and, and there's something about that. I like, I like thinking of this congregation is uh, this is a little outpost of heaven that I'm a part of that you're right. a part of. Right. And, and we do this together. It's family. You know, when my family gets together for a meal uh, for somebody's birthday or a holiday. We don't hire a chef to come in. We cook together. Right. And we're not the best cooks. We're not the, we, we don't, we don't put out the, the, the absolute best meal that could be had, you know? Um, but we do it together and it's family. And, it, yeah. and, and I think there's something really sweet about the local church in that regard that could not necessarily all the time, but could get compromised if we, outsource and hire too much out from with people that don't belong. They're not a member. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what kind of, what does that communicate to the church is that we'd rather have an expert musician on stage than to have someone in our church participate in leading worship. Right. And, and that to me is where there's just this fine line you got to be careful with. Right. And it's, this is one of those questions that could only have started it could only have begun to be asked in America 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is actually a very unique question in church history, mm-hmm. uh, all told, mm-hmm. um, where you know the <laughs> the church uh, was in the presence of God just as much in the Roman catacombs worshiping by candlelight mm-hmm. <laughs> as it is if you have strobes. Yeah. I'm not I'm not a big fan of 
strobes and lasers and stuff mm-hmm. during corporate worship. I'm not I'm not saying that it's sin to have them, mm-hmm. but I think I think the and we've ripped on them repeatedly the seeker sensitive movement yep. where you have to come and entertain the goats into making a decision for Jesus yeah. um, has affected mm-hmm. uh, our thinking in that in that in some ways. Now obviously we're not saying that there's nothing wrong with, you know, putting a fresh coat of paint on your walls mm-hmm. uh, with with having some kind of mood lighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you like the the stained glass in medieval churches was meant to evoke certain emotions mm-hmm. for certain for good reasons um so we're not ripping on all excellence all professionalism yeah. but once you cross that line into let's make it a production that's where i start to have an issue with it because that's the same one of the same things that the reformation was fighting against was yeah. the, the church service was actually happening on stage and everybody else got to watch mm-hmm. as opposed to Everybody is involved with this. Yep. Everyone is singing. Uh, the singing was meant to be congregational. Everyone takes communion, all of it, yep. not just the priest who mm-hmm. who takes the wine. Um, the The congregation receives the word preached. It's not just a TED talk. <laughs> there, there's a reception of the word, and so it's it's meant to be. Uh, like you said, you want everybody involved, right? Yeah. Um, and it, that doesn't just have to be serving. Like if you need, if you're in a place where you don't need to play guitar, if you can't play guitar, right? Right. right. Um, or, or whatever, like just come and be fed. That's what mm-hmm. the church is for. Yeah. Well, I I had somebody ask me recently, you know, what what is what is the purpose of the church gathered? And we've talked about this on previous episodes. Um, but if you if you see the purpose of the church gathered as um, entertain the goats so that we could convince them to become sheep, uh, then you do start to elevate the production elements to yep. the point that I think your perception and attitude towards the local church gets off by a few clicks. Right. Um, as opposed to the purpose of the church gathered is for worship among the believers. And mm-hmm. yes, we want to be mindful of unbelievers. We want to be sensitive to the spirit as he might be drawing those to faith that aren't in faith. But when you see it that way, then then you start to think of it more like a family. Uh, it's a family gathering. It's it's a body of believers coming together to worship. And so we want to highlight and accentuate that, which I think tends the church towards more volunteerism than hiring. Right. But there's also a, you know, consideration when it comes to what what are the best uses of church resources. Yep. As we speak right now, there is a a company that we've hired that's putting new roofs on all three of our buildings. Right. Could Resurrection Church have called a family work day and we done this ourselves? Please no. <laughs> yes, but but why do you say please no? That's not a good use of our time and resources. Right, and, and we're not going to do it nearly as well as they are. That's right. In terms of and and that's not you know it's not a Lord's Day worship thing. Right. This is a this is a facilities kind of thing, and I think that's one of the lines we're going to draw. Right, and and Res has the luxury of having the money to be able to hire this out. Right. Some churches may not have that money. And yep. so would it be, would it be to the detriment of a local church if they decided, look, we don't have the money to hire it out. We can buy the shingles and other materials and do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. That could be a great thing. 
Yeah. That could even be done to the glory of God. Could yep. even be done with a spirit and attitude of worship. And mm-hmm. so that could be a good thing, but we have to make those decisions on a case by case basis. And yep. so, you know, there I remember with the first church I worked in, uh, we did a, a big Easter um it was a production. It was an it was an Easter uh we used to call them cantatas with the the I had my choir at that church. We brought in another choir from another church and we used some of our musicians. Uh but then I hired a professional pianist and some uh string players from mm-hmm. a local college and and paid them to come in alongside our volunteers. Right. And I don't think that was a bad thing. I think the church enjoyed and benefited from having these cause, but there was a clear distinction. Look, these are guests that have joined us. Yeah. And but there's also our people involved and so I don't think it made those lines fuzzy in terms of what we do week to week versus what we did on a special occasion. Right. So, right. um anyway, I I wouldn't begrudge a church paying a musician on a weekly basis. Uh, I just would want to ask some questions. If that was, if we were going to consider that at Res, I would want to ask a lot of questions. There would be some serious consideration before we did that, right? And then there's there's other things uh, mentioned here: sound and video production, child care workers, security janitors, accountants. I think uh, we're not binding any consciences here no, by any stretch no, of the imagination, no. but it's it's ask the questions. Uh, what in what what is involved with this? So I think child care workers. Well, hopefully it's not just like if you have the kids separated. Um, hopefully you're not just like giving them goldfish right, <laughs> and, and plopping right. them down in front of a movie, making sure they don't kill each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then security. Um, well, I could see a place for having an armed guard mm-hmm. potentially, mm-hmm. but if you hire someone to stand outside your church, you're also preventing him from actually coming in and worshiping with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now janitors, that's not going to be happening during Sunday morning. That's mm-hmm. going to happen beforehand yep. in preparation. Like, mm-hmm. So I'm kind of like, well, who cares? Right, right, right. <laughs> um, it's kind of the same thing if if your church hires an accountant. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they're crunching numbers for you, and yep. it's not during the Lord's Day corporate gathering, right? Um, I, and I, it really kind of feels like that's kind of where we're landing is – does this affect the actual church gathered or not? Yeah, I, look, there's obviously some nuance here, right? But let's just let's just pull the rug back and talk about where and and how this gets sketchy and could cause negative feelings. Is when you like, for example, when I was in college and traveling with the the group that I traveled with, we had a drummer. And granted, he he was he was paid in one sense because he was getting some scholarship money. Yeah, but he had the worst attitude. He didn't want to show up for practice, mm-hmm. um, and he was incredibly talented. The truth yep. is, he didn't have to show up for practice. Right, he could show up and give a token listen to the songs and play it better than any of us. That had worked our tails Those off. Those guys are infuriated. Yeah, he's <laughs> just that good and probably the best drummer that I've ever played with. And 
you know, had, had went on and did some studio work after college and stuff like that. But he was so good and he had such a terrible attitude that it never felt like he was part of the team. And the director at the time, at least for a while, put value on his talent over his commitment. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes, particularly in a band, what happens is you've got all you've got these players who are and musicians who are and singers who are a part of the church. They're members of the church. They're devoting their time not just to leading praise and worship, but in other areas of the church, serving. Uh, like you, for example, you're 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 not only a musician here; you're also a trustee, mm-hmm. um, and you've volunteered in other ways from time to time. So it's it. You've got people like that, and then because you want the production element to be at a certain level, you bring in this person who's an expert musician who has no vested interest in the in the church as yep. a whole uh, and is only there because they're getting paid. Mm-hmm. Then I think that creates a dynamic that is unhealthy on the team. Yeah. And, and unless there is some real clear, distinct, defined – expectations and a, and a real clear here's why we're doing this like maybe because we're having a special event or we're doing something out of the ordinary we're going to bring this person in to help us and that's clear among the team then i th- i think that having someone in week to week who isn't vested in the church as a whole creates an unhealthy dynamic in my opinion and i just wouldn't do that yeah there's there's something to be said about team chemistry as well, mm-hmm. um, I was I was listening to uh, the Talking Baseball podcast recently. Uh, John Boy Media. It's a couple of guys in New York and Trevor Plouffe, who is a former big leaguer. Mm-hmm. And um, and Trevor Plouffe was talking about uh, you know team chemistry being important, where you've got the veteran guy who's teaching the younger guys like this is the right way to play the game. Mm-hmm. You've got the guy who. Uh, make sure everybody stays up. You know, during a 162 game season, there's going to be ups and downs. And if somebody's sulking in the clubhouse because he's on an offer mm-hmm, <laughs> streak, mm-hmm. uh, then he can bring everybody else down. Then everybody's in a slump. Mm. Uh, so you got the guy that stays positive, the guy that teaches everybody. You got uh, guys that bring like goofy energy type of stuff. And you need all of those guys uh, for for a clubhouse to work. And inevitably, Every single World Series champion talks about, oh, yeah, we're all really tight. These are the best guys in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And there's obviously something to be said, well, yeah, winning will do that. But uh, you have the combination of the talent and the personalities working. Like if you look at the uh, the 70s Yankees, they were throwing down in the dugout. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, it, and it made for some hilarious moments, mm-hmm. but you didn't really hear a whole lot about uh, the Yankees for, you know, a couple decades after being dominant for, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and then 70s and 80s, they kind of fall off mm. and because of some chemistry stuff by and large. And then in the 90s, it was just mm. like, oh, they're back, yeah, yep. <laughs> you know, um, so that you're exactly right. The chemistry, the attitudes, um, if if it's like this guy's just here to do a job, then well, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm pro- if if he's as talented as that drummer, yeah. I'm probably putting in more work than he is. Yep. You yep. know, for for 
you know, if, if we think of dollars as certificates of appreciation, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm getting fewer certificates of appreciation than he is, right? Yeah, right, right. So, so what do we do with that? <clears throat> the screensaver just popped on the computer and we had to, we had to fix that just to make sure it didn't go to sleep. Yeah. Just leave that in there, John. We'll have fun with it. <laughs> on that Long, note, awkward pause. On that note, let's just go to the Inquisition. Let's do it. And this is the Inquisition, where you, the listener, contribute by asking us questions in the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast Lounge. And remember, every question submitted, every share of the show, and every quote submitted from every show gets you entered to win a free book at the end of every month. And as is tradition, we start with Brian Morris, kind of a heavy question. He says, to what degree, if at all, should churches, denominations, and church leaders be held responsible for the actions of those they influence? And he's citing specifically the Atlanta shooting that happened last week where he's a member of a Southern Baptist church, that Southern Baptist Church is part of uh, Founders, uh, which is a basically a conservative coalition that uh, adheres to Reformed theology. And if you're not familiar, that guy uh, basically blamed sex addiction for uh, and trying to remove temptation when he shot up, I think it was three massage parlors, killed 10 people, and I believe eight of them were Asian women. Mm-hmm. Um, am I getting that right? That sounds about right. I don't remember the numbers, but... Right. So, uh, you know, to get it out of the way, no, this church was not teaching anything racist. They mm-hmm. weren't teaching anything that... They weren't teaching anything that would have led this guy to actually do this, right? Um, just outright. What he did was out of bounds with what they taught. Uh, so it seems to me that if you, if someone teaches that kind of thing, then yes, they would be held some kind of responsible f- for those actions because they're saying, yes, go do this thing. That's a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, but this church being one SBC and two reformed, they're going to teach the 10 commandments. You shall not murder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Held responsible by whom? Right. Right. And, that's that's and that's a great question. You know, it 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 I don't know, I might get in trouble for saying this, but you know, it, it, there's never been any inclination that I know of to hold either a local mosque or the institution of Islam mm-hmm. for its radical extremist uh, who fly planes into buildings and yep. and blow trains up and buses and what have you when you know the there's there is clear uh, teaching in the Quran about killing the infidel you know I mean right. there's 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 influence from the doctrine itself even though I guess we would say the majority of Muslims are nonviolent right um, so it was held responsible by whom the state. Mm-hmm. You're, you're thin ice right there. That's that's very very thin ice, and and you know I don't even know that I want to try to tackle that per se. But I think that should the the SBC, for example, um, 
take some take some consideration. Uh, should they be concerned with what their te- their churches are teaching mm-hmm. and how that might influence behavior? specifically behavior like this. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. yes, there therein lies the need for there to be a broad sense of accountability, which doesn't really exist in a lot of, um, yep. a, a lot of the evangelical world. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, you have leaders who have fallen and, um, you know, things that have happened, you know, uh, Carl Lentz gets fired by the, the mothership of Hillsong church <laughs> yeah. for, infidelity and adultery. Um, and so there is a sense of accountability. Um, but, and, and then you think about you know, what kind of influence did Mark Driscoll have on the, I, I don't know how many campuses and, and local congregations made up Mars Hill at its peak. Right. And his leadership style being, dare we say, abusive and overbearing and, and, mm-hmm. um, what kind of influence did he have and how did that impact people's behaviors in their homes or in their places of business, in their communities? We, we don't know, but there, there should be accountability Mm -hmm. uh, for how a local church's influence impacts people's behaviors, particularly when those behaviors become destructive or um, abusive, or certainly when, you know, when they break the law, I, I get iffy about the state, coming right. in on that because right. that's a slippery slope. But I do think in-house accountability among local churches and denominations certainly needs to be there. This makes this kind of thing uh, makes me really sympathetic to the Presbyterian church structure. Um, if, if there were a denomination that was credo-baptist, but Presbyterian in structure, where the church is still autonomous, but the pastor answers to a session, mm-hmm. or, or to a presbytery, rather... Um, I'm sympathetic to that mm. uh, because if if you started preaching all kinds of nonsense and the elders were on board, mm-hmm. uh, then someone else could be like, "No, yeah. stop that." That's right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, you know, outside accountability. I mean, it, it, it's it it's needed, and, right? And a lot of churches don't have. Res right. does not have an infrastructure that it's a part of that would provide right. that. So and, there, the, and there are pros and cons to both structures. Totally. That that, that needs to be said. Um, it, it, I'm not saying that you can't have a healthy church without outside accountability, but it does help. Yeah. I mean, I have outside accountability, but it's kind of informal. It's not documented in, in the sense right. that, you know, um, Brian Onkin, uh, who I've talked about before, is 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 a man that I submit to. Um, he's in his mid sixties. Um, I think he's solid across the board in, mm-hmm. in everything doctrinally, biblically, and, and, um, on the regular, I submit what I'm teaching to him Yeah, on the regular. I call him and ask him, am I thinking about this rightly? And along with the plurality of elders that we have here, but it's not a perfect structure. Right. Um, if, if he says you're not qualified for ministry anymore, yeah. um, you can tell them to stick it. <laughs> I can, and, but yeah. the elders, the elders here have the authority to uh, remove me or sit me down mm-hmm. if need be. Um, but you know, it, it's accountability is something that you know. I, I think about the Apostle Paul when he talked about in Galatians that he he made a point to go sit down with Peter to make sure that 
quote, he wasn't running in vain. Yeah. You know, this revelation that he had gotten, he wanted to make sure lined up with the other apostles. And so right. there was this this humility that Paul had, even with the, the great revelation that he had, that he wanted to make sure that he was accountable. Um, and there was built-in accountability. And then he even reciprocated and, yeah. that and held Peter accountable. Yeah. So and he was really, really blunt about it. Too. Very blunt about it. And um, I think we have to trust the Spirit. I mean, Jesus is building his church. And um, I think we ought to do everything we can to to surround ourselves with people that hold us accountable. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but we also have to trust the spirit to to lead us and protect his church and his sheep. Yep. Uh, next question from Scott Hamilton. Is the current millennial backlash against the purity culture of the 90s justified, and where should we go from here? So the whole, you have to have a promise ring. <laughs> you, <laughs> you have to... Uh, you know, sign a pledge that you won't mm-hmm. engage in sexual activity uh, before you're married, kind of thing. Uh, I, I think of stuff like I kiss dating goodbye, mm-hmm. um, all that kind of thing. And, and it honestly, it kind of, uh, I think it kind of landed in an unhealthy place. It, its intentions were really good, mm-hmm. uh, but it it kind of led to an obsession with this particular sin, not committing that particular sin. And then if somebody did commit that particular sin, they were kind of seen as damaged goods from then on. So are we talking about the millennial backlash towards sexual purity specifically? I think there's a lot of, it's kind of a mixed bag Mm. on social media. Uh, obviously you're going to have people, you know, caught up in the spirit of the age with the LGBT, uh, and the, you know, uh, I guess you could call it sexual libertinism. Mm -hmm. Just do whatever you want as long as people consent kind of thing. But then there's also some people who are, are saying, you know, we really could have gone about this a lot better, um, where, Ugh, like looking back on some of it, some of it just feels gross. And John and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, in in terms of like the Jesus junk that was also so prevalent in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Of you know, instead of uh, Gold's Gym, it was God's Gym, and <laughs> Jesus doing a push up with the cross on his back and stuff like that. Uh, I, I honestly connect I all that. of that in my mind. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I, I think that, um, you know, Paul talks about asceticism in Colossians, which is extreme disciplines yeah. that would be applied to our lives that he says are of no benefit in quailing the flesh. Mm. And a lot of that 90s stuff, promise rings and, you know, purity commitments and, and all this kind of stuff. I even knew someone or a, a couple of people at North Greenville who gave pre-engagement rings. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I think that it, some of that may be with the best of intentions. Right. And, you know, some of that could be, you know, sentiments that are expressed in the most genuine ways. But... It obviously didn't work in a lot of cases, Um, and I think what was from I'll I'll just speak from my own experience because I'm in one sense I'm a child of the '90s. You know, in 1990 I was in sixth grade, 
seventh grade, something mm-hmm. like that. So um, my middle and high school years are are in in college years are all in the decade of the nineties. Yeah. So I I went through all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I know, was I was more on the tail end of it. Really, yeah, like when yeah. it was kind of coming to its logical conclusion, and even the promise keepers phenomenon was a, was really a big part of that as well. Yeah, of men gathering by the thousands, mm-hmm. and a lot of the emphasis was on purity and holiness and devotion mm-hmm. and um, you know promises and blah blah blah. So, <clears throat> what I think was absent in all of that from for me mm-hmm. was the. The, the fact that the gospel is really about a change in affection, a change in desire. Yeah. Like I never really got that. Like what, what I, what I felt like was ingrained in me was that Jesus died for my sins so that I could be forgiven. And what I needed to do was appreciate that and value that so much and also be scared to death of the alternative enough that I did my level best to stay pure. Mm. Never did it. Was it really explained to me, and I didn't get my head around the fact that really purity flows out of affection. I'm faithful to my wife or my my commitment and faithfulness to her is driven primarily, primarily by the fact that I just love her to pieces. Right. My affection for her is very, very high, mm-hmm. and that drives me to, yes, is there that part of my flesh that you know, wants to turn and look, wants to mm-hmm. you know have a thought that I could go down a fantasy rabbit trail right. when I see something or experience something here and there and yon. Yes, there is that part of my flesh, but that that that's where I have a I have a in my relationship with my wife and my commitment to her, I have a tremendous amount of motivation. Right. That is driven not only by my affection for her, but my affection for Jesus mm-hmm. and my delight in him. And this is where books like Desiring God changed everything for me oh, when yeah. I started to realize that I can I can I can overcome temptation. I can live a holy and pure life, not just from this grit my teeth and try not to do the, the bad thing, but from this incredible desire and motivation for my God because he's that good. He's better. Right. You know, and you know, Jonathan Edwards talked about the, the alcoholic who you, you set a drink in front of him and he wants the drink. Mm-hmm. But when the, the alcoholic overcomes is when he, he says, I want the drink, but now my greater desire is for the sobriety. Right. So I deny myself the immediate pleasure of the drink because I I have a greater desire for the long-term pleasure of being sober. And I think that there that's a good picture of what purity is all about yeah. is we all face that temptation for immediate gratification, mm-hmm. but my greater desire is for the Lord and for his goodness and his kindness and his mercy and his love and his beauty. And that drives me past those immediate temptations yep. for gratification. Yeah. And and maybe I'm not remembering that this was ever said, uh, but I don't recall anything like that being said within that realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I, what I do remember at least from some parties is, you know, this, you know, 
obviously sex is a gift yep. from God to be enjoyed in a certain context. But the way that they hyped it was, you know, if you just wait, it'll be amazing yeah. when you get married, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I know several people who it's just like, eh. You know, you know what I mean is, mm. is, you know, they, they had a couple kids and now it's a struggle to actually be intimate with their spouse, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, oh, maybe this was overhyped, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it just kind of went along with the sex obsessed culture that we were, it's not just now, this has been building for decades. Well, that's a good point. Um, I mean, the taboo yeah. thing is what sometimes drives people's inclinations and desires and 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 if we don't if we don't contextualize sexual intimacy in the right way in a biblical way Mm -hmm. then yeah you do get these expectations and i think you know the the dawn of the renaissance and the you know all of that didn't really help us you know we we it, it was marriage and sex prior to shakespeare was very utilitarian in a lot oh, of ways. Yeah. It's not oh, to yeah. say that there wasn't deviance and perversion and right. all that kind of stuff. That, when it became about romantic love kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and the romantic comedies that we've all, you know, kind of grown up watching and mm-hmm. stuff paint these pictures, you know, of what sex and romance and intimacy is meant to be like. And yeah. that doesn't really square with the biblical uh, narrative and explanation of what, how this great gift that God's given us, you know, uh, there, there, yes, the, the sex is amazing in the context of marriage and we need to let the Bible define that for us and not culture. Yes. Um, and we need to understand that, like you said, I mean, you haven't had kids yet, but my goodness, um, you, 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 I've been married almost 22 years and sexuality in my marital relationship has evolved and grown and flexed mm-hmm. and right. and it's had to because if you put the same kind of romantic pressure maybe I'm getting off on a tangent here but we'll just go with it. if you put the same kind of romantic and I told you this in premarital mm-hmm. you and you and Kristen you put the same kind of romantic pressure on your marriage relationship that you might have had in the whatever span of time you were married without children mm-hmm. on those particularly early years of having young children, you're going to be incredibly frustrated. Right. Because it's just, it, that's not to say that it can't be great and it can't be good and you can't have wonderful intimate moments with your spouse when you have, you know, a few toddlers running around and one of them's puking in the corner, the other's <laughs> po- pooped in his pants and another's pulling flour out of the pantry and throwing it everywhere. You can still have it, but you can't put those same kind of expectations. You have to yeah. let it flex and grow and evolve. And there's, I think there are, there are truths in scripture that help us see that and understand that. You know, when Paul talks about husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, you know, and I begin to think of as a husband, my sexual relationship with my wife as an opportunity to serve her. Yep. That changes the game. Yep. And I think even, you know, John Piper has put out some good stuff on this on Desiring God. If, you know, those that are married uh, want to check that out, I think that's a, that's a good resource to go to. Yep. Uh, next one from Sean Pierce Johnson, who has done a couple of demos from the Westminster effects line. So check out his stomp box Saturday (laughs) YouTube channel. He does a really good job. It's not just a bunch of blues riffs and I appreciate that. And he asks, 
Uh, how do you approach leadership about improvements that can be made to certain teams? And he plays guitar at his church, but he hasn't been there long. Uh, but he also knows what he's doing. Uh, so how do you approach leadership about improvements without coming across as overreaching, overstepping, all that kind of stuff? He says he sees some needs that need to be filled and fixed, but he doesn't want to step on toes. Hmm. Well, I think that... Um just as a leader myself, you know, one of the things I appreciate is when people that have, you know, constructive criticism to offer is that a, they don't come with problems and no solutions Mm -hmm. or, you know, they don't come, you know, bringing up issues and aren't willing to work within the current structure in order to address those things. Right. Uh, They just want to kind of come and, you know, you know, it, 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 we get this a lot. Like sometimes people come to res and they've been at bigger churches, mm-hmm. larger churches, ministries that had more resources, more staff, more whatever. And maybe they were involved at a high level of leadership at those places. And they come to Res, and they really appreciate Res for maybe what we are and and what what the Lord's doing here. But then they want to come and and you know kind of dump all their expertise, quote unquote, from the bigger church on this. Smaller church, and yeah. and a lot of times that's just not helpful. Well, why don't we do X? Yeah, kind of thing. Or or give me this whole thing, and I'll fix it for you. <laughs> no, I don't know you. <laughs> you you know, showed up last week. <laughs> you showed up last week, and you want to come showing me your resume? No, no. What what really needs to happen is just get involved. Right. You know, and who is it that asked this question? Sean Sean Pierce Johnson. So if you if you're Sean, if you're new to a church. Um, my suggestion is get involved and contribute as best you can for a season before you bring all this up. Yeah. You know, demonstrate commitment, demonstrate loyalty, and demonstrate a desire to just be a part of this local church family and contribute in positive ways. And then once you've done that for a season, and I, I don't I don't know how long that has to be. Right. It could be a couple of months, could be six months, could be even a year. Mm-hmm. What you, you just trust the Lord to lead you in that. Uh, but after you've been involved for a while, then approach leadership with, hey, I've got some ideas. I've got some suggestions. You can tell me what's doable, what's possible, what what you think would work well, and I'm willing to help in whatever way you deem best. Yep. I think that's the best attitude to go yeah, with it. I can dig it. Yeah, there's, there's something to be said for not coming in with a sledgehammer. Yeah. With something that's already been established. Mm-hmm. It'll, it was... It, it existed before you came along, and if you bail, it'll keep going, mm-hmm. you know, after you leave. Um, so that that humility and being willing to actually feel it out, see what's going on, mm-hmm. there's there may even be reasons underneath the surface that you don't know about mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, reveal themselves after you get mm-hmm. more involved. Yeah. And, and it could be some of those problems end up fixing themselves down the road anyway. Yeah. And I, th- and I think, you know, honestly, like we, we had this fairly recently. If somebody came, moved here from another state, came from a really big church. Mm-hmm. This person was apparently, according to them anyway, um, at a high level of leadership in a certain part of the ministry. And instead of just wanting to come in and get involved and contribute with what's going on here now, they want to start a new program mm-hmm. and replicate what they did at this other church here. Right. And I'm like, no. Yeah. yeah. I don't know you. 
And that doesn't fit within the DNA of our church and where our church is right now. Mm-hmm. What I'd love for you to do is if you really do value, because I think a lot of people, you know, come to Res and they really, really value our culture of worship. Right. They really, really value our expository teaching. Um, they even value the, the sense of community that we have here. But then they want to leverage programming or certain types of um, methodology that they've learned from other places here. And that doesn't, that's not always helpful. Right. It sometimes maybe it can be, but I think the best thing is just, just get involved. You know, I, I've, I think of Andy Long, who's one of our elders here Mm -hmm. and I will never forget. He came to one of our newcomers luncheons when he and Jessica moved to Greer from North Carolina, and I and I sat down with him, and I just started asking him questions about his local church experience. And he said, you know, prior to us moving, he said that he had these were the these were the terms that he used. I felt a call to preach, and he said that I was beginning in my former church to get some opportunities to teach on Sunday morning. Hmm. But that's all he said, and I never pressed him on it. Yep, I just said, oh well, that's great, love that. Love that you were, you know, exploring that or whatever. And I never once mentioned to him, you, uh, let's, let's figure out how you, we can get you involved in the teaching here. Mm-hmm. Let's figure out whatever. He just started serving in kids ministry. He started serving in other capacities. And after a few years, just of being a part of the church family and contributing whatever ways he could, he became a small group leader. And then after a, a few years of that, Mm-hmm. He was nominated to become an elder and then eventually affirmed as an elder and has preached a couple of times since becoming an elder a little over a year ago. Yep. So that that's what I'm talking about is he's over time has without reading me his resume or lobbying for some position of leadership. Right. He just naturally rose to the surface as someone qualified and gifted to be an elder in this church over time. And he's contributing in, you know, it's, it's that instant ways. gratification conversation all over again to an extent. Exactly. But, but it even reminds me of that, uh, that CS Lewis quote, uh, about people who run for offices. Well, maybe the people who desire that kind of power or authority or whatever term you want to use, Maybe it's those people who shouldn't have it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe it should be the people who just kind of do their thing and serve and show that they're qualified. Mm. Well, maybe they're the most qualified. Yeah, I think small church. And we, uh, we need to wrap this up, but yep. I think small churches are vulnerable. Or can be vulnerable in this regard too. Is that sometimes we're so desperate to have help that we put people in positions of leadership too quickly or we give them influence too quickly. And I think that's a dangerous thing. I think I'd rather grow more slowly and be, be more cautious and thorough yeah. with people uh, and, and welcoming their influence and ideas than I would the alternative where you can end up, you know, cause I've made this mistake many times. <laughs> I've put people in positions because they sounded good and it ended up being a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. One last question. It's a fun one from Von Scott. He says, what are your thoughts on getting tattoos after getting saved? <laughs> I'm a tad biased. It's, it, it, uh, it's, you're going to be anathema. It's, yeah. it, the, the, the glory has departed. One, uh, two, three, four, 
We're not sure Cody's going to make it to heaven. Um, I have 12. (laughs) (laughs) Is this a tongue-in-cheek question, or is he serious? I don't know. Uh, But, I mean, if we're going to go to the law, that one one verse – uh, is really like if if you look at the context, don't put tattoo marks on your body or cut yourselves for the dead. It's cult practice type stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, not, totally. it's not an outright ban on tattoos. No, that doesn't mean just go get tattooed whatever you want. If you get a naked lady tattooed on your forearm, we're gonna have a talk. <laughs> I I I think that we, you know, Piper said it best. I think. Um, Anything can be a sin. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. You know, water could be a sin. It's just you, you, anything that becomes an idol or becomes, um, you know, something that become you know, is put between us and God is, is, you know, all things are lawful. Not everything is permissible mm-hmm. or helpful. So, right. Um, I, I think tattoos are a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. So, it's, so you're getting your, you know, full Japanese Yakuza style back piece next week, right? <laughs> there's, there's, I, I, I have begged my wife for one tattoo and one tattoo only, and she won't have it. She won't have it. And 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 let me let me clarify what tattoo it is. It's not uh, mama on my left arm and shoulder. It's you know, it's not my wedding date across my chest. I want a wedding ring tattoo because I don't like wearing jewelry. Mm. I, uh, I am sympathetic to that. We, just we both wear the Kalo. I, style. Yeah, I have the Kalo silicone ring, and that's that's you know the thing that works best for me now. Yep. But she just she won't have it. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so <laughs> I would imagine that would hurt that spot. Uh, just well, tattoos hurt every well uh, some places more than others. Yeah. I, guess. I I started with stuff on my chest because I knew if I could handle that. Then I could handle whatever else I wanted. Yeah. And man, I tell you, the uh, the birds that I have on my chest, it felt like my nipples were being ripped off. Oh, <laughs> and then I've got script under my collarbone, and when it was on my sternum, like it vibrated up and <laughs> down, like up into my throat, yeah, and down like my sternum. So like the stuff on my arms, stuff in my legs, who yeah. cares? Yeah, you know, like I have that reference, and it's just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it never tickles. Yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah I I almost got one in college uh, that some of my friends in college were all they were all going to this tattoo parlor and um, I think I chickened out and and then when they came back you know one of them had gotten this I forget what it was it was something cool and then the other had gone and he couldn't decide what he wanted so he just ended up getting a cheetah. <laughs> On his arm, and I thought that is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Not even like the Cheetos. No, cheetah. just a just, cheetah. Just a cheetah. It's just a cheetah. I'm like, why'd you get a cheetah? I don't know. I couldn't think of anything else. So for the rest of your life, you've got a cheetah on your arm for no reason. Yeah, we'll, we'll end on this. I used to work in a restaurant, and working in a restaurant's kind of dangerous anyway. Yeah, <laughs> with some of the personalities it attracts. And there was one guy who desperately wanted. He smoked a lot of weed. He desperately wanted a tattoo of a hot dog and a hot dog bun holding hands. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back next week. (laughs) 